0: God stepped in to help David at a point when David couldn't help himself. Now we're going to pick up the story here in chapter 30. If you were here last week, you'll remember at the end of the, the passage that David had been caught in a very difficult situation where he was going to be forced to go into war with the Philistines among whom he'd been living. But God miraculously saved him from that situation. And we're going to pick up a story now as David and his men return home to Ziklag, their hometown. Beginning to read at verse 1, David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They'd attacked Ziklag and burned it. And had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They had killed none of them, but had carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. Ahinam of Jezreel and Abigail, the the widow of Neval of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and his daughters." We'll break there. We're going to read the the chapter in parts, and I'll just be making a, a couple of comments as we go. Ziklag had been left undefended, a raiding band of Amalekites who, by the way, are long time enemies of Israel, had come and they'd taken the village, they'd captured the women and the children as slaves, and they'd looted the place and burned it to the ground. So when David and his men, they returned to find only uh, a smoldering pile of ashes and their families gone. They break down, not surprisingly. They wept until they had no more strength to weep. First the grief and then the anger. They're angry at David because he's the boss. This is all David's fault. They'd left the the town undefended, and this is what's happened. So David here, he's not only heartbroken because his wives have been kidnapped and his family, but he's also in serious trouble. So let's read on. Let's see David's response. David was greatly distressed, picking up in verse 6 again, because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and his daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod, Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You'll certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor ravine, where some stayed behind, for 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. I hope you've, you've been encouraged as we've been looking at these chapters from 1 Samuel these last months. I keep stressing to you what it is that we're trying to do as we read God's Word together. We've been trying to get a feel for what God's Word says about David, because God's Word tells us that David was a man after God's own heart, and that makes him a person whom we'll want to to have a close look at. What in particular is it about David that allows that kind of a verdict to be passed on his life? Well, I think here we, we get another clue. What is it about David that makes him a man after God's own heart? Disaster has struck. David's in terrible, terrible trouble, and watch what he does. Verse six, part B. David found strength in the Lord his God. Isn't it brilliant? and isn't it so simple? If you've been here with us, you'll know that this isn't a one-off. This is instinctive for David. This is what David does when he gets into trouble. Back in chapter 23, we read about a time when, when David first fled from Saul's court, and we read there about a time when Jonathan came to him and helped him to do what? To find strength in the Lord, exactly the same the same phrase is used. Wouldn't that be a wonderful instinct to develop for those of us who follow Jesus? That when we run into trouble, instead of floundering, instead of getting into a tizzy and losing perspective on everything that's going on around us, to instinctively find strength in the Lord. I know as I think of all the things that that cause me to, to be stressed, the things that cause me to lose peace in my own life. I would, I'd love to be instinctively turning to God. Often, whenever I run into trouble, I seem to think of everything I can do to sort it out first, and once I've exhausted that, I might go to God. With David, it seems much more instinctive. He, he turns, turns immediately to God. In verse 8 there, we read that David inquires of the Lord. And his question is, should he pursue this raiding party? And again, this is instinctive for David. This is what David does when he's not sure what to do. He inquires of the Lord. This isn't a one-off. Whenever he was wondering back in chapter 23 about whether to attack the, the people of Kilah, we read there that he inquired of the Lord. That's what David does when he's not sure what to do he asks the Lord. And again, in much the same way, I'd love it if that were more instinctive in my life. Uh, If if rather than having a a go at guessing, I I lived always open to God's guiding and always ready for Him to speak to me. I don't want you to miss a very important irony that's happening in the biblical narrative at this point. David's not the only one at this point particular point in time who's looking for guidance. Saul is too. Remember, David's life and Saul's life are running in parallel at the moment. The the massive irony here is that while David is inquiring of the Lord at this very moment in the biblical narrative, you can read about it in chapter 29, Saul is going to inquire of a witch at Endor. This is Saul, the Lord's anointed, who began his kingship in Israel with such a, a glowing period. And I think it's no mistake here that in the biblical narrative, these two are being contrasted. David inquiring of God, Saul off running after a witch, hoping that she'll tell him the things that he wants to hear. Well, under under God's guidance, David and his 600 men have set off on pursuit. And by the way, they've already marched about 75 miles from where they left the, the Philistine troops to come home to Ziklag. They probably did that as quickly as they could to get home. So they were probably exhausted when they arrived and then discovered that their, their town had been burnt to the ground. From there to, to this place, Bessor, is another 15 miles. So they've got about 90 miles under their belts in the last few days. So it's understandable that in verse 10 that we read a couple of hundred of them drop out. Now, David continues his pursuit with the other 400 men. So let's pick up in verse 11. The 400 and David set off. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived for he hadn't eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, to whom do you belong? Where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kerithites, and territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I'll take you down to them. He led David down And there they were scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they would taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. It's interesting here when David and his men meet this Egyptian. I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of this Egyptian with 400 Israelites. Egyptians and Israelites have a bit of history between them. If you're an Egyptian, you don't really want to bump into 400 Israelites on the warpath. But the interesting thing here is how, how David treats this man. He's obviously on death's door with starvation and dehydration. But David's men feed him. And that's, that's entirely unexpected, really. Remember, they're in a hurry to recover their families and their property, and yet they take time to, to care for this man and his needs. It's, a, it's really an unexpected act of generosity in the middle of a very, a very hard environment and a, a very crucial time for David. We've just read this story very quickly about how David gave, God gave David victory over the Amalekites, and how everything was returned to him. It's very clear in the the passage that 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 is important. Absolutely everything is returned to them. Nothing has gone missing. Not long ago, these men, don't forget, were ready to stone David. They were grieving their families. They were ready to stone David, and now they're celebrating and, and shouting to David's praise. This is David's plunder sounds like a good place to end the story because everything that was wrong at the start has now been resolved. But that's not where the story ends. The climax to this story comes when we discover what happened to the other 200 men, the 200 who are back at Bessor Ravine. Let's read verses 21 and 22. David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at Besser Ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with him. As David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the evil men and the troublemakers among David's followers said, because they didn't go with us, they will not share in the plunder that we have recovered however, each man may take his wife and his children and go. You could hardly blame these guys. You could hardly blame these hecklers. Fair's fair, after all. What they're suggesting sounds pretty reasonable to me. Those who had won the battle, those who had risked life and limb, they are the ones who should enjoy the, the booty. The other 200 don't deserve anything. They'd been too weak, They dropped out in the middle of this pursuit. They had been soaking their foot in the brook while the others had been risking the terrors of the wilderness and of battle. Of course, they weren't entitled to any share of the goodies. David saw it differently. And picking up in verse 23, we see how he deals with this situation. David replied, No, my brothers. You must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He's protected us and handed over to us forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to battle. All shall share alike. David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. Not for the first time in this story we see David acting out of generosity. David wants all the men to share in the success. He he recognizes the important part that's been played by those who stayed with the supplies at Besser Brook. What is it about David that allows him to be generous? Why can he do this? Well, it's because he's aware of God. It's because David is a man after God's own heart. Look at verse 23. David knows that everything that they have received is from God. It's God who's brought them the success. God has brought them this sick Egyptian to guide them. Otherwise, they could still be looking for the Amalekites today. God has ensured that the Amalekites were complacent and undefended. Otherwise, David's small band would have had no chance against them. God protected the women and the children so that all were returned safe. All of these things are blessings from God. Everything, says David, that we have experienced here is sheer grace, so not one of us has earned it more than any other. It's all of God's goodness. And that's why David said, let's, let's share this. Let's have everybody enjoy God's blessings. As I wrap things up here this evening, I, I want to think about how, how this passage could maybe apply to us here this evening. First of all, let me say that there are some of us here who are among the 400. We've received God's blessings and we carry them in our hands. And I'm gonna think for a moment with you of, of our life together as a congregation. We have known many of God's blessings. We sit here tonight in a beautiful building and we have facilities here that would be the envy of a lot of community groups in our area. Many of us here have been blessed with a heritage of faith, with Christian parents or or grandparents. As weeks and months go by, we're we're being blessed with an increasing quality of fellowship and sharing together in our time here. To us, a passage like this asks an important question. How do we deal with the blessings that God gives to us? Do we pay lip service to the fact that all of these blessings are from God? Do we say, oh, yes, it's all from God and and he's, he's good to us. Do we pay lip service to that and yet underneath congratulate ourselves on what's happening? Do we cling on to every good thing that God gives to us as though we deserve them and as though they're ours by right? Or do we do as David did? Do we look for those who don't yet have the blessing? And do we approach them with open hands and say, this is for you too. We no more deserve this than you do. God has blessed us. This is for you. As well as speaking to the 400, I want to speak very, very briefly as I close to the 200 waiting at Besor Ravine. The Hebrew word Bessor means gospel, good news. This incident at Bessor Brook gives us a, a wonderful image of the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us. There were 200 men there who weren't able to do any more. They were at their wits end, they were stuck. They haven't contributed at all to the cause and yet they share in the victory and they share in the blessing. Isn't that the truth of the gospel? In the passage that Alistair read for us earlier, Paul puts it like this, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of works so that none of you can boast, Maybe there's somebody here tonight who is at Besser Brook. You've been battling your way through life and, and you're worn out. You've given your all and you're tired. But spiritually, you feel like you've been left behind. All the stuff that, that God does, it seems to, to fall to other people. They're the ones who seem to understand it. They're the ones who seem to enjoy it. They're the ones who seem to live under the blessing of God. Maybe you've resigned yourself to just not being that type of person. A person who won't ever really enjoy the fullness of what God gives His people. Just wait. Someday you're going to have the surprise of your life. Because you're going to discover that it's all grace. That it's all God. That it's He who comes to us who don't deserve anything, who can't do anything. He approaches us with all the blessings of a wonderful life. And He just gives them. If you can't do anything and don't feel you can do anything, don't worry because none of us could. Everything that I have, I thank God for. If you're somebody who is still waiting, God is not far away. He's ready to give all the gifts of His grace to you. My prayer is that you would keep an open heart, live an open life, Seek God and you will discover that he is waiting to be found. Let us pray.